Melton BOA News. From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are Anita Powell, VOA White House correspondent, and Steve Reddish, VOA executive producer. Welcome, Anita and Steve. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. Well, as we look back at some of the accomplishments and challenges of President Joe Biden's administration in 2021, it was a year that began with an attempt to thwart the transfer of power with the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol building by a mob of supporters of then-President Donald Trump. The attackers sought to disrupt the joint session of Congress, which was assembled to count electoral votes that would formalize President-elect Joe Biden's victory. The attack prompted the formation of the House of Representatives Select Committee to investigate the root causes of the violence and how it was funded. President Biden saw some of his domestic agenda become law as Congress passed his American Rescue Plan and the bipartisan infrastructure law. However, the president's more significant climate and social spending package, the Build Back Better Plan, did not pass due to opposition from Democratic Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Other challenges in 2021 for the president include falling approval numbers, the surge of coronavirus, supply chain bottlenecks, rising inflation, and the crisis at the border with Mexico. As we look into 2022, President Biden and the Democrats will confront huge challenges in the midterm elections. The U.S. and Russia continue talks on Ukraine and other security issues. The stunning Taliban takeover of Afghanistan in mid-August of 2021 and the chaotic final U.S. military withdrawal from the country marked an end to America's longest war. And tension between Washington and Beijing is heightened by what U.S. officials say is a diplomatic boycott of the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing. Well, those are some of the top issues of 2021, and let's get started. Anita, this coming January 6th will mark the one-year anniversary of the attack on the Capitol. What is the White House view of the attack? Has the Biden administration been overshadowed by this and the claims that the election was stolen? Yes, definitely this has been a regular topic that has been brought up in the White House on the one hand, with Press Secretary Jen Psaki denouncing it as an insurrection, an attempt to subvert democracy, and on the other hand, with the White House trying very hard to keep out of the process that's happening on the Hill in which they're investigating this attack. What she did say recently was that the White House will commemorate the day. She did not give specifics on how, but that it is a day that has overshadowed the work of President Biden basically since day one. You know, he has, of course, made some steps to tried to tackle this, notably during his inauguration speech, identifying domestic terrorism as a serious threat, which rankled a lot of Americans, of course. So this is a continuing struggle and one that I think has in inadvertently and against the desires of the Biden administration defined them. And can I just say one other thing, Kim, which is that I think just looking at everything that's happened in 2021, I think we can safely say that this is the longest year in human history, or at least it feels like that. Longer than 2020, huh? Unbelievably so, yes. By exponentially so. The January 6th issue is perhaps the most important issue facing the United States in the coming year. 
it's the biggest, most visible attack on American democracy in 150 years. And the committee that is investigating this in the House of Representatives, they're said to be close to holding public hearings of the evidence that it has gathered. And I would expect a methodical presentation of that evidence, which will include public questioning of various witnesses. So I think that very shortly, very soon, we're gonna see some of the work that the committee has put in over the last six months. We're gonna see some of that work come to fruition in the way of public hearings so that more people can see what evidence and hear what evidence that the committee has gathered. Yes, it is good you brought that up because it appears that former President Donald Trump and his allies may intend to drag out this process until 2023, when there's likely to be a Republican majority in the House. So would they be able to do this? It depends on, on how quickly their legal claims are going to be heard by a court. You know, justice in the United States does grind slowly. It is going to slow things down, but it will not likely get in the way of how the committee is going to present the evidence it has gathered so far. They may not be able to bring the chief of staff, Mark Meadows, before cameras and into a live hearing. They may not be able to do that yet, but they will be able to take the various different pieces of communication and other information that Meadows and others have provided the committee to be able to present their case. And no, while some of Trump's cronies and former administration officials have tried to put up delays and filed suit, there are others who have cooperated with the committee. So I think we'll see some of that come out, certainly in the last couple of weeks of January, moving into February. Also, and just looking at the attack overall, what is the historical significance of this attack? And could this have an effect on future elections? First time in, since the Civil War, as far as history is concerned, that American democracy has been challenged quite this way. And the country is still divided over the 2020 election. There was a poll done in November by Monmouth University. They do very credible political polls. Shows 32% of Americans think Joe Biden won the 2020 election because of voter fraud. Nearly 75% of Republicans still cling to that belief that Biden won through voter fraud. And the way this is shaping up, there are office holders, Republican office holders, who are clinging to the, the big lie and changing election laws in various different states to make it easier to overturn election results that they don't like. To punctuate the false claims of voter fraud, the Associated Press reviewed and analyzed all of the cases in 2020 that have come to light of voter fraud. Fewer than 475 cases were uncovered, which is far fewer than could possibly sway the election in any of the, of the states. And in most of those cases, the bogus ballots were not even counted, and they were not all for Biden. Well, President Biden's American Rescue Plan and the bipartisan infrastructure law were successes for President Biden. However, his more significant Build Back Better plan, which includes the voting rights legislation, was not realized in 2021. So, Anita, what is the White House take on this and what do they plan looking ahead? 
So the White House is maintaining their optimism, both that they can pass this bill in some form and that they can continue to work with the biggest wrench in the works. And that is Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who is the key vote who you know, said in what the White House described as a sudden and inexplicable departure that he couldn't support this bill after months of high-level talks and negotiations with the president himself. So they are optimistic that they can work with Manchin, that they can work with you know, Congress to push this through in some form. They don't know what that's going to look like. They're not ready, they say, to discuss that in a public forum. They're going to do that with the Congress people who are going to vote on this. And as you know, Chuck Schumer has said he's going to bring it to the floor for a vote in January. And so we will see how that goes. But I think if history is any indicator, this is going to be a lengthy process yet again. And every detail is going to be examined, dragged out, deliberated before a final vote is held. And the biggest issue, as Anita pointed out, is that Democrats just don't have large enough majorities in either House of Congress to be able to pass major legislation. Biden was able to get the American Rescue Plan designed to help those who lost jobs or unable to work during the pandemic. That passed along partisan lines. Democrats voted for it, Republicans voted against it. Biden was able to win bipartisan support for more than a trillion dollars in spending over 10 years to help rebuild American infrastructure, the network of roads, bridges, ports, and high-speed internet. But when it gets right down to it, this Build Back Better legislation, that remains a major issue that crosses partisan lines because the most conservative of Democrats are not in favor of it because they think that it's too much spending on top of previous spending. So Democrats are facing a crisis in, in trying to get their own legislation passed without a whole lot of votes. How that's going to play out in 2022, we'll see in the first few weeks whether or not President Biden has enough political sway within his own party to get these two senators on board with his legislation. And among some of the other big challenges facing the Biden administration is the surge of the coronavirus, which is also worldwide, and also the lack of home tests here in the U.S. President Biden implemented strategies to fight the virus that included vaccine and mask mandates, business restrictions. And with the new surge and the Omicron variant, Biden says the problem of the testing shortage must be handled at the state level. There is no federal solution. So how does this aspect fit in with his overall strategy to fight the virus? Well, let me first say, Kim, that I think it was last week that President Biden announced that the U.S. is going to distribute 500 million, half a billion free testing kits through a website to any American who wants one. And that's going to start in January. So hopefully this could be too late for this current surge, but hopefully they will straighten that out. And when asked, you know, why didn't you do this sooner? The president said, well, this came upon us so fast. This new variant, which is just so highly transmissible, just came on us way too fast for us to realize that that was what we needed to do this urgently. One of the lessons that I've seen and I, I've learned throughout the almost two years of the pandemic is that the pandemic is in charge of how the economy, not just here in the U.S., but around the world, it's in charge of how that's going to progress until people feel safe enough to work in close conditions. Goods and services can't be produced on the kind of scale it used to be produced before the pandemic, as well as being shipped and then sold without 
those kind of delays to the supply chain. President Biden, one of the things that he was elected on was competent management of the COVID crisis. And this issue with the Omicron variant kind of sneaking up on the world and on America without enough tests produced for people to not just buy, but to have and take it before they go out. It's calling into question whether or not his administration has the competence, has the ability to deal with the pandemic as he campaigned on. Yes, and looking at this is going to be one of the big challenges continuing in 2022. And you look at some of the other challenges facing his presidency, and as you mentioned, the supply chain bottlenecks, the rising inflation, the crisis at the border with Mexico. So out of these, what do you all see as the coronavirus is going to be number one, but the second biggest crisis he'll need to tackle? To quote the Clinton campaign, I think we all know what I'm about to say, which is, it's the economy, stupid. That was the famous quote of the Clinton campaign in 1992. It's going to be inflation for the American voter. This is what matters to Americans when they go to the grocery store and they notice that the bill is significantly higher than it was six months ago, and that affects their bottom line and their ability to you know, live their lives. So I think it is going to continue to be inflation and the economy. While Americans understand fundamentally that the pandemic is creating some of these issues as far as higher prices, it's still a disconnect once you have to reach into your pocket and pull out an extra $10 to fill up your car with gas, $10 that you were able to use on something else six months ago. And I think that that kind of mindset, if it continues, is going to impact the way Americans vote in November. Absolutely. I'm with you all on that. I do believe it's going to be the economy, which is what's on everyone's minds right now. And it's time now for a quick break. And when we return, we'll review President Biden's foreign policy on Russia and China. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, Anita Powell, VOA White House correspondent, and Steve Reddish, VOA executive producer. Well, in looking at the situation on the Ukrainian-Russian border, how is the U.S. handling of Russian troops at the Ukrainian border seen by international observers? Russia's military buildup along the border with Ukraine is perhaps the most tangible of the foreign policy issues facing President Biden, trying to keep Putin from invading Ukraine, short of putting U.S. and NATO troops in harm's way. Basically, the way Biden and NATO have come together on this, the ball is in Putin's court to decide whether or not invading Ukraine is worth all of the economic sanctions that are likely to rain down on Putin and his oligarch friends from the United States and NATO countries. There is a fear that perhaps if Putin does go into Ukraine and sanctions do rain down on Russia, that will move them closer to China. China is the biggest buyer of Russian energy and natural gas and oil. Naturally, you could see Russia and China forming much more of a closer bond with one another against the West. 
right now, Putin's got the keys as far as what will happen, whether or not he feels like he can go in without serious repercussions, because Putin is determined to keep NATO away from its borders. Just to jump on that, one thing that Putin has made very clear in a list of demands sent, released publicly in recent weeks, is that Moscow does not want to see Ukraine joining NATO. And this is a key, you know, sticking point for the U.S. and also NATO allies who say, you know, it's not up to one NATO member country to deny anybody NATO membership and that Ukraine is a sovereign country that has every right to decide to join NATO if they want, if they qualify and they can jump through all the hoops. And some analysts I've spoken to say that this is really what he's doing. He's posturing all of these troops, 175,000 of them allegedly, at the border with Ukraine to signal that he needs a buffer. He does not want Ukraine to join NATO, and this is his way of showing it. And he does not have an actual intention to invade, because I think it's pretty clear that if he were to do that, it would be a lengthy conflict, it would be an expensive conflict, and it would be an extremely bloody conflict. And none of those are really great for a guy who's trying to run for re-election in 2024. Very good points that you all have raised here, and we will continue to follow developments in the coming weeks. And looking back on the U.S. exit from Afghanistan, for many haunting images of the end of America's 20-year war there are those of Afghans crowding an airport runway the day after the stunning fall of Kabul to the Taliban. So what type of mark has this had on Biden's presidency? I think it's pretty clear that this has been a stain at least in the foreign policy realm, on the Biden presidency. You can't look at those images and not say, wow, this, this is a huge human tragedy. And the fact that the Taliban is now in charge in this country, that their takeover was so swift, does represent a setback in terms of the development of Afghanistan and their hopes for democratization, for equality, for social justice, for all of these things that many people around the world want. The interesting thing is Afghanistan is somewhat contained. It's physically contained and it's economically contained largely because of all of the sanctions and the limitations that the U.S. government has put on Afghanistan. The two biggest issues that the Afghanistan withdrawal raised was a question of competency, again, by the Biden administration, as well as whether or not the United States can be counted on as a full ally to other countries. And questions are now thrust into the thinking as to if the United States pulled out in this way with Afghanistan, what are they going to do with various different other allies? I think actually, come to think of it, the Taliban itself has recognized that the U.S. is seen by some as a fair weather friend and they've sought their own friends. And so the Taliban met before they met with any other government, I think they met with the Chinese government at a high level to see what they could accomplish through that partnership. And that is interesting. If Afghanistan's new government is aligning itself with China, the U.S.'s biggest adversary, that's going to have consequences in the future for the U.S.-Afghanistan relationship, for the U.S.-China relationship, for, for the world in general. In speaking of China, what would you say observers would give in terms of a grade the U.S. relationship with China right now? Would the U.S. get an A, a B, a C, 
I would say a C minus right now. It's not quite failing, but it's certainly not excelling. It may be a little bit under average. And I think that's mostly because of four years of the Trump administration, where it was a constant battle between the U.S. and China. And now moving on and questions about now that the Biden administration is in, are they going to take a tougher line on China? What about human rights? So I think that the United States and China are in this with a new president here, feeling out one another. And it hasn't flourished, but it hasn't disintegrated yet to the point of total anarchy. I think that's a really fair assessment. Although I think if you ask the White House, they would underscore that hardcore rivals like the U.S. and China are not expected to always get along swimmingly. That's the nature of rivalry. So maybe one, they would probably say, a C-minus in perspective is pretty fair considering we are opposed to each other ideologically, economically, and in a lot of other ways. I think, as the Biden administration has said, competition is okay. Conflict is not. And we haven't escalated towards open conflict. And the Biden administration says that they're doing everything they can to prevent that with China. And so far, that has been the case. So while I think Steve's grade is fair, I think he is a very harsh grader as well. Okay. And just real quickly, before we just get to our last topic here, what would you say in terms of the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing? How is Biden handling this situation? I'll go ahead and take that, Kim, because I spoke to the White House this week about that when reports emerged that the U.S. had applied for visas for 18 diplomatic officials to provide security support operations. And they were very clear that the diplomatic boycott is still on. And what that means is you will not be seeing high-level Americans, for example, the president, the first lady, the vice president, and so on, representing the U.S. at these games. Those people will be absent. These 18 people are diplomatic personnel who are there to maintain the safety, security, and render the citizen services that these athletes, 200-some athletes, need when they go to a foreign country, especially one with such different laws and social mores as China. Before we wrap up the show, I wanted to get your thoughts, Anita, on South Africa's anti-apartheid hero, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, passed away last Sunday at the age of 90. And as a former South African correspondent for some time, I wanted to get your thoughts on his legacy. Sure. So the Arch, as everyone in South Africa called him, because everybody in South Africa felt a personal connection to Archbishop Desmond Tutu, was really the moral conscience of South Africa and one of the last living embodiments of that after the death of Nelson Mandela and a lot of ANC struggle colleagues. What really made the Arch an unusual figure and a wonderful figure is that everything he did, every fight that he engaged in, he did with joy. You cannot remember Archbishop Desmond Tutu without remembering his slightly outrageous, infectious, borderline ridiculous laugh. And he had a number of laughs. He would giggle. He would chortle. He had an entire encyclopedia of laughs in that man. And he would laugh often in a country with many challenges, in a country where he faced a lot of opposition as an Anglican bishop in apartheid South Africa and also in the country's progression as a post-apartheid society. He was not afraid to speak up against the ruling African National Congress, which made him an unusual voice because he was the moral voice of the anti-apartheid movement. And then when the new government took over, he criticized them as well. 
I think that it is a bit harsh for South Africans now to say there's nobody to take over that legacy. I think it is possible that, and this does happen in post-colonial societies and post-liberation societies, we conflate suffering with virtue. And no one would deny that Nelson Mandela suffered, that Desmond Tutu suffered, and that a lot of their compatriots suffered for their cause. But I do think that there is a generation of South Africans who've been raised in a slightly less unfair environment who are still fighting for justice. I'm thinking of the AIDS activists who are hard at work in Durban and Johannesburg and across the South African countryside who are trying to bring people, you know, both messages of hope and deliver them medications. Those people are fighting for justice. And just because they didn't grow up in apartheid South Africa does not mean that their fight is any less valuable. So I would caution against saying that he was the only moral voice in South Africa. Well, thank you for your thoughts on the arch. And we are out of time. A huge thank you to my panelists, Anita Powell, VOA White House correspondent, and Steve Reddish, VOA executive producer, for providing your insights on a year full of twists and turns. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News.